Hello and welcome to Talk Gnosis, the web's premier talk show about Gnosticism, the esoteric, alchemy, hermeticism, the Rosicrucians, mysterious texts, Neoplatonism, and anything else we feel like talking about. Especially synchronicity. Oh yeah, synchronicity. Yeah, we are actually way overdue for a Jung show. I'm gonna try to book it. If you're a Jung expert and you're out there, hit me up. The email's down in the show notes. Uh, I'm Deacon Jonathan Stewart. I'm live Sorry, from Montreal. And joining me, of course, is Bishop Lady Peterson, live from Chicago. Hello, Bishop. Hello. I, the reason I mentioned synchronicity is I had just been looking at some information about Dr. Cheto's uh, book, which we're going to be talking about today, like the day before you told me that she was going to be on the show. Yes, and, and that's like so the he, third he time sends that's it over happened? to me. Yeah. yeah, and then, yeah, and this has been an ongoing thing. We've actually been bringing up synchronicity on the shows recently, and a couple last few guests. And then this happened, and I said, "Okay, well, I'm just going to roll with it." Exactly. It's meant to be the the cosmos is is telling us to do this show, share this knowledge with you, and uh, encouraging everybody to watch your show to go out and buy Dr. Sasha Chato's book, which of course brings us to our guest, Dr. Sasha Chato, <laughs> live from Greece. Hello, Dr. Chato. Very good evening from Corfu, Greece. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, yeah, synchronicity is a big deal for me as well, so I'm glad you brought that up. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I wear a number of hats. Um, I think this evening I'm invited as an author, but I am also, well, uh, um, I'm a researcher um, into the history of uh, Western esotericism, among other things and as well as the well, history of science more recently, um, as well as an artist and educator in various other sundries. Um, yeah, actually, yeah. oh, sorry. We've, we've been meaning to have you on the show for a very long time, and we hope that this is not going to be your only appearance. And we thank you because it's the middle of the night where you are. Now, before we get yeah. into the really good stuff, I have to do the top of the show commercial because if I leave it to the end of the show, you're all going to turn off the show and run out and buy Sasha's book. So we can't have that. But I do have to put in a plug for our – I mean, we can have you buying the, the book. Go ahead and do that. But we can't have you missing the commercial, which is uh, please, if you can, Support us on patreon.com slash Gnostic. Uh, we are volunteers. We do need money to do the show. We hire the world's best digital studio, 99, Perspecti 99 Perspectives. Uh, and we do need you know, your financial support to keep doing the show. The show is brought to you by viewers like you. You can donate for as little as $1 per piece of media per month. You can also cap that because sometimes we do do more media. So you can put in the, the top amount that you want to put in. If you don't don't want to have a recurring charge, you can also visit paypal slash paypal.me slash Gnostic. You can do a one-time donation there. I know these are hard times and donating a little as a dollar it may not be possible for you, but if you like what we're doing and you want to support us in other ways, subscribe to our YouTube, subscribe to us on podcatchers, share the show on social media, rate and review it, send it to a friend via email. So that's the plug. On the, enough of the sizzle. On to the steak. Dr. Chatow. Your book is called... Atalanta Unveiled. Perfect. And we're, before we get right into it, we got to start at the very beginning. Who was Count Michael Mayer? So, um, yeah, the book focuses on um, a multimedia emblem book from the 17th century by... by 
Count Michael Meyer, who was the epitome of a Renaissance man. He was um, royal physician to uh, King Rudolf of Prague within the very alchemy-friendly court um, of the day. He was a diplomat, he was an author, and he was, of course, an alchemist. Um, and he was um, an early Rosicrucian apologist around the, straight after the time of the appearance of the Rosicrucian manifestos. And all of this, of course, is happening within the context of um, a l religious uh, conflicts and turbulence within Europe. So uh, this is a man who has literally stumbled across um, ancient philosophy and alchemical literature in the library of a patient of his. And through, through that discovery, he, and through his um, medical knowledge such as it was, he's trying to make sense of the cosmos. And he essentially tries to use um, Pythagorean number theory in order to kind of structure and give shape to and give um, form to and make sense of um, all the knowledge that he had accumulated. And again, all of this within the context of what was essentially the, um, well, the Rosicrucian uh, promise that a new age was dawning and this would be a time when um, peace would eventually reign and that a, a time when um, humanity would be able to finally uh, take a step closer to the divine. So in a nutshell, that's um, who he was. Okay, I, I know this is a complex question, complex answers, lots of definitions, but uh, what is alchemy and how did Mayer understand alchemy? Well, you know, you ask what is alchemy, uh, ask 10 people, you'll get 10 different answers um, <laughs> because it's, yeah, even scholars talk about alchemies rather than alchemy. It's <laughs> that difficult. Alchemy, oh, it's, it's a stream of, many, it's many streams of different things feeding into something we try to call a tradition, but it's not. It's, it is more complex than that. It's proto-chemistry. It begins with metallurgical practices right back um, at the dawn of recorded history. It's early medicine. It's the practice of um, trying to refine both metals, but also nature. In parallel, and at the same time, you can't really differentiate one from the other. It's a system for spiritual growth and spiritual refinement, self-refinement, really. Um, Jung, unfortunately, Jung popularized alchemy again, and many people do first come to alchemy via Jung. I did, <laughs> you know, I'll freely admit that. But um, the thing is that one of the one of the disservices that Jung did to alchemy was he detached the practical from the spiritual. And alchemy is essentially built out of a theoretical base, um, the physical, the actually hands-on lab alchemy, and the spiritual dimension. And without all three, it's not alchemy. 
to be honest. It's something inspired by or based on or extracted from or call it what you want, but it's not actually alchemy. And the reason was, the idea was that we are so connected as, as humanity, we are so connected to nature um, and we ourselves are the bridge between the physical and the uh, spiritual, if you like, plane, that we have to participate in the whole process, body and soul, quite literally, otherwise we're not doing it. So, uh, it, and that is that is Maya's understanding as well, put in very simple terms. Um, it's been, it's had a bad rap. Uh, we usually get the kind of popularized version of uh, gold makers and puffers and people trying to get rich quick by turning lead into gold. Yeah, there were people like that. There were people like that in Maya's day. There've always been people like that. There always will be. Um, but when we're talking about um, alchemy as, uh, well, uh, as an as a, I don't like to call it an esoteric system because it wasn't just esoteric. It was a healing practice, and it was the practice of truly communing with nature in all its dimensions and at all its levels, essentially. Mm. What was the Atalantia Fugins. Don't know if I said that right. Which is, of course, the, <laughs> okay. And what your book Atalantia Unveiled is about. Uh, and uh, like, what is this text? Why did Mayer? Why did he create it? Okay, so the Atalanta Fugins is a book of emblems, and it consists of fifty copper plate emblems um, with exquisitely detailed. Um, alchemical symbolism and these are accompanied by a short motto or you could call it a title in a way in latin um then a short um legend which is uh, it's like a verse it's uh, six or seven lines and then each of these emblems and legends are also accompanied by um each one has a piece of music that's been written for it or attached to it um, which is meant to be played and sung at the same time as studying both image and text. And all of that is wrapped in a longer commentary with, in which Maya actually goes into some many of the elements that he's drawn together all the way back from ancient philosophy to um, more current to his time, um, either alchemical or other theories and philosophies to try to help the reader to unlock the actual meaning. Um, so the reader was essentially expected to contemplate the image, listen and sing the to the music, study the, um, study the legend, which is actually a riddle. It, 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 they all read like riddles. Um, and then study the commentary until they've unlocked the meaning. And mm -hmm. this is one of four, well, basically it's the Atalanta and one other, the Arcana Arcanissima, which are like full, really rich emblem books. And then there are two other ones, two earlier ones he did, which are similar. Um, but each of these were meant, it seems, to uh, unfold for the reader who could unlock the riddles because you have to be able to unlock them. It, it's not straightforward at all. Meaning is not straightforward. Um, you that was meant to lead you through the alchemical process, reveal the uh, alchemical steps, if you like, and stages, uh, which, if followed, because you 
obviously have to get into the lab for that, um, would eventually lead to a pro this process of uh, gradual ascension and um, refinement. Now, most people, they, they think of multimedia as a new thing. And I'm sure a lot of people at home, if they're not familiar with this text, is like, wow, this just sounds quite complex. Why did he make it a, a multimedia experience? Okay, so you've got to imagine that in the Renaissance, um, everything, and, and the, I mean, there's, <laughs> I don't think we'll, we have the time on the show to go into too much detail, but um, there was this huge emphasis on the image and on images with meaning. So when you look at Renaissance art, for example, um, like well-known Renaissance art, so Botticelli's work, Michelangelo, so on, there's there's riddles within riddles there's meanings within meanings there's little references to this myth here and that myth there and it was a sign of um education and a social standing if you could actually that the more complex the image if you could unpack that that was actually a sign of social standing and a, a good education um okay. and there's actually there's one painting by uh, I, I this is not related to maya but it is related to the framework in which he uh, he was working by bronzini which is this incredible allegory and it's really really complex it was gifted to a king of the day which and it was meant as a huge compliment because it was so complex that it it, it was it's as if the um the person giving the gift was saying uh, that he acknowledged the king's wisdom and uh, depth of knowledge, that he knew he would be able to decipher it. So in the Renaissance, you look at Renaissance architecture, there's images everywhere. There's reliefs, there's little faces, there's little symbols. There's this, none of that's decorative. All of it's meaningful. Mm. You walk around the city of Rome and there's, it, you see this, especially Renaissance buildings, there's images everywhere. This was deliberate. And it was part of this huge kind of drive towards humanist philosophy in which as you would walk through the streets, you'd be bombarded with little messages, little moral teachings, little suggestions, things to contemplate on your way home kind of thing. So, you know, now we're bombarded with advertisements, then you'd be bombarded with that kind of thing. So back to Maya, this visual language was the language of his time. This was the language he spoke. This is the language of the educated intellectual seeking something greater. So already before we even go near alchemy or esotericism, this is normal for that particular section of society. Um, now, why did uh, Maya create this book or these books as he did? Um, he seems to have studied and to have um, gone very deeply into alchemical theory, alchemical history. He got his hands dirty in the lab as well. That much we do know. Um, and in his attempt to gather all the wisdom of the ages together in the form that he had encountered it, um, he also realized, and he has said that we, this is in his writing, that he wanted to firstly protect it from profane eyes. Therefore, it had to be in a form that someone would have to really want to work mm -hmm. with and engage with in order to make any sense of. But secondly, and most importantly really, because there's content in there that can only really be revealed if you work with it. It can't, it, I, I, even I can't, I can explain, you know, get, if we could put an image up, I can explain to you what the individual symbols mean. We can go 
to a certain, we can go so far with it, but it's only once you work with it all the way that it can take you anywhere. So the riddles and also the fact that it, the, it, it consists of 50 emblems, they're not in the right order. They're all backwards, upside down, wrong way around. Um, and I say this because they don't follow the alchemical progression. It's meant to be a book on alchemy. <laughs> the alchemical stages are there, but they're all like that. And so it's a riddle. It's, it's individual riddles packed within a huge riddle made up of, of, a, of a number of pieces, which are also riddles. And the, as he put it himself, you would have to really be, you know, the real thing to be able to unlock it. It is unlockable, just scholars, <laughs> <laughs> scholars at least. And I know there are some who have gone further than I have with it. Um, you know, we're still working it out. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, you mentioned that the, the emblems are out of order. Uh, how did yeah. you discover a, a better order, the, the way that they possibly should flow or the correct order or the, the recreation of what could possibly be the correct order? So, well, A, he leaves a breadcrumb trail. I mean, you know, he does have these commentaries which have the breadcrumb trail, but you've got to be able to piece it together. Um, it's pretty obvious. Like once you know that, once you know the alchemical sequence, you can see very quickly it's not in the right order because it doesn't, nowhere do you get the sort of progression from um, the stage of putrefaction or um, base matter and then through the um, gradual stages uh, towards refinement. That sequence isn't there. And even when it is there, you see there are sets of images that feature, for example, ordinary people doing everyday work and that's symbolic of certain alchemical stages but it mixed within them you've got the incredibly sort of um esoteric symbolism you've got planetary symbolism you've got all sorts of things um at which in other alchemical sequences or in other alchemical writings there is a set sequence and that's been that's all been mixed up so uh, as I, I'm not the first to have noticed this, um, nor the last, but um, I came to it before I knew that others had uh, noticed the same thing. So I kind of noticed it and then went looking and saw, ah, it's not just me. I'm not imagining this. Um, and so first of all, which is what um, others tried, I went with one of the alchemical sequences. Now, the alchemical stages... In some alchemical writings, there are four stages. Those can be subdivided into seven. They can be subdivided into 12. None of those quite worked. None of them were quite right. It seemed that it was, it was kind of forced. You couldn't get those numbers to work with a number 50. You've got 50 emblems. So I went back to Maya and I went back to the beginning. And I looked at the very first verse accompanying the very first emblem, which basically tells us the way to unlock it is Pythagorean. It's in Pythagorean math. And um, it's, it, it, it kind of gives a sequence, a sequence to follow, which um, led me to the first emblem in the series, and then also gave a, a series of other meanings within the emblems. And elsewhere in the commentary, he does also confirm that 
the uh, Pythagorean sequence of numbers um, is the key to the Atlanta. Once you've got that, it's still not simple because you then need to figure out, okay, I've got that much, but where do they all fit together? It doesn't really tell you which, which images go with which. So from there, you've got to use some of the visual clues, some of the written clues. Um, you've got to use the commentary. You've got to use the clues he gives you. And slowly, by sl slowly, piece by piece, you can pull it together. What I ended up with, and I don't claim that I finished the job, um, I know that I got to a certain stage, which is which was sufficient for at least my purposes. Um, I established that it probably works as a kind of spiral because the alchemical process works as a spiral, as in it kind of one one goes up and reaches a certain level of refinement, but then you need to begin the process again and then again, and there are these successive levels and gradually a, a sort of um, progressive um, refinement that will eventually lead, if you follow it, I suppose, um, to whatever the ultimate end is, the Philosopher's Stone in whichever form. Uh, no, I didn't reach it. But that's more or less um, what Maya seems to have aimed to do through this stimulation of all the senses until we could actually get to um, unlock the sequence. Uh, before I barrel on, and of course, uh, we could pick up any thread and talk about it for hours and hours, which is so common on this show, <laughs> and so common with these topics. But but I've ever paused and stopped barreling on, and, and just, uh, Bishop Laney, do you have anything you need to, to get out or any rabbit holes you want to go down? Yeah, actually, I do. Um, as, far, as far as rabbit holes, it's funny that you bring that up, maybe synchronicity again, because I was thinking about a book that I had read about um, the author of Alice in Wonderland and how An Alice in Wonderland had a, a fair amount of Rosicrucian uh, symbolism that was buried into that text as well. It was a fascinating book. Uh, I don't remember the name. I'll try and remember it. Maybe we can share it with our viewers and listeners later on. Uh, but the idea of you know being surrounded by these illusions uh, and, and, and images and, and yeah, if you're an educated person, if you're in the know, so to speak, uh, being able to pick up on those and perhaps being a test of one's uh, of knowledge and perhaps even initiatory level. I think that's absolutely fascinating. But I was also wondering, um, Atalanta, of course, is a figure in a myth. Um, in the U.S., we actually, we, we, well, I learned about it when I studied mythology, but also in the U.S., we had a, an album that came out in the 70s called Free to Be You and Me, which was a, a feminist children's a, a, um, album. And the story was rewritten in a feminist way and was performed by Marlo Thomas and Alan Alda. Um, I was curious, um, in this book, uh, does the myth of Atalanta, is it, is it alluded to directly or is it something that's hinted at? I'd like to just know uh, what role of any Atalanta, the, the mythical uh, person, uh, is plays in this book. Yeah, um, it's uh, front and centre, the myth. It's on the frontispiece. There's an illustration of, um, <laughs> precisely of the myth of Atalanta Fugins. And of course, she's um, this daughter, this king's daughter. And when he tells her, he completely ignores her for the first <laughs> few mm -hmm. years of her life. And then um, when she comes of age, uh, he decides he wants to know her after all and tells her, oh, you've got to be married. Um, and she refuses and she says, um, and meanwhile, she's grown up in the mountains and uh, is 
totally um, wild and self-sufficient and won't have any of it. So um, <laughs> she says to her father, okay, fine, I'll marry whoever can outrun me in a race. So he brings suitor after suitor, tens, hundreds of suitors, puts out a call, you know, young men come and beat my daughter in a race and marry her and nobody manages until um, Hippomenes um, manages to steal some apples, some of the golden apples of the Hesperides. And um, as, uh, as Atlanta's racing, he throws them across her path and that confuses her. She goes after the apple and he manages to beat her. Uh, which, I mean, you know, depends which version you read or how you want to interpret it, really. But in a sense, it meant that at least he was bright enough for her. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, there, and, and, yeah, there are various other dimensions to the myth. But that is, that is the um, frontispiece. One, and one of the many reasons that this seems to have been used for the book is that... Um, Maya wanted to illustrate how fleeting and how difficult it is for to actually um, capture the, the essence of the alchemical secret, mm -hmm. if you if you will. Um, so another, it, it may illustrate the actual alchemical process itself from beginning to end. So also the sort of um, again the elusive nature of it, and there are various other the other layers to it as well. But um, yeah, the frontispiece itself is it, it is worth a look because it's separated. I'm looking at it. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I can't share it with you, but um, it's separated into three levels, and you have three different levels of myth. One of which um, in, there's this vessel which suggests the alchemical vessel, and it also suggests the unification of opposites, and so on and so forth. So it's all in there. Fascinating. I just I started to think about it, and and you know I was just wondering because with the golden apple, okay, it's you know you're running the race. She was a virgin huntress dedicated to Artemis. She was a great hunter, um, yeah. and yet she gets distracted by shiny things um, and loses the well, race. Well, so it could I, be I, that. Well, yeah, it could I mean, just that, one way, then... one way. Well, it could also have been the philosopher's stone, which could suggest that that's enough to sacrifice um you know life in the wild for to go after a goal like True. that i mean you know there, there's there's different ways you can <laughs> spin it i guess yeah um dr chato you you touched on this uh the, a little bit before when we're talking about the multimedia aspects and you were talking about the emblems and you know how uh the co complex uh images that that intelligent people would have to figure out but but what does imagination have to do with how the atalanta fugions is supposed to work and like how did meyer understand imagination okay so i mean meyer didn't use the term imagination himself it's a term that has come up uh, when we talk about uh, Neoplatonist Neo philosophy and we talk about, um, well, when we talk about a lot of things, actually, when we talk about her hermetic uh, sort of initiatory uh, dimensions, it, imagination is essentially a way of knowing. And it was something, it was central to the visual, the visual kind of, the emphasis on the visual that I talked about in the Renaissance period. Um, the way of knowing or the epistemology of um, that particular mode of communication was the imagination. Now, this actually stems from, uh, it begins with Aristotle and then it was taken up by St. Thomas Aquinas. And it's fun, funny enough that we find it then applied to 
um, rather than scholastic uh, thought, we find it applied to Neoplatonist thought. But um, it kind of goes like this. You have the internal intellect, because this has to do with the perception of how sort of how the soul or how the inner knowing, the inner faculties communicate with the outside world. world. So whatever the inner faculties and whatever the higher faculties, perhaps in communion with a higher plane, to start with, you still need the external senses. You still need your eyes and ears. And these, of course, are what Maya was stimulating through these uh, various, um, uh, through his creation, through the images, through the um, music and so forth. So you need the external senses to communicate to the internal senses. And they need, the external senses need some kind of representation of external reality. Okay, they can't just, you know, what am I supposed, if, I, if I'm looking at a blank wall, what am I looking at? I'm looking at nothing. Give me um, a symbolic relief. I'm looking at something that then my brain basically can process. So when that relief I'm looking at or that image I'm looking at or that emblem contains a complex layered kind of symbolism, my external senses gather it and process it inwards. At that point, I'm still not sure what I'm looking at. I need an in-between, in a bridge, if you like. I need a, a, another faculty to begin processing that and make sense, making sense of that. And that faculty is the imagination. It's not the imagination in the sense of, um, oh, I wonder what I'm going to paint today, or I wonder what um, music I'm going to compose today. It's not that part of the imagination. But it's that faculty that we use when, when indeed we're trying to decipher a set of signs. Um, and so, yeah, as the imagination and the memory kind of, they, they record the impressions of both what my eyes have seen and what my internal nous, my mind, has processed. And that is the bridge between external and internal. And basically, the one can't, can't take place without the other. So it's basically a faculty of the mind, of the intellect, which allows us to process and understand symbolism. And it's very, very, as, as you've seen, I'm, I'm struggling to find the precise mm -hmm. words for it because it's so hard to pin down. It's something we all do, in fact, without mm -hmm. thinking all the time. Um, now, on a, when, if, if, we, if we take this to a metaphysical level, you see, this hasn't got, has nothing to do with faith. It has nothing to do with um, a sort of more mystical type of experience. It's a totally intellectual experience. Um, and that's often misunderstood. But as you're studying the emblems and as you're reading the symbols in the picture, in the image, and the little wheels are turning, if you like, that's where the imagination comes into play and allows your previous knowledge to communicate with what you're already looking at and give meaning. And that's basically how it worked. I hope that came across <laughs> as, as, as I meant it. <laughs> no, it, it definitely did. And you definitely helped me to, to understand the, the concept a lot better. So uh, why is this text a, a kind of an initiation or initiatory journey? Because it's hard work 
And because the degrees of realization that occur as you get through even partial stages, because I consider my, I mean, I've been studying this thing for a long time and I left it to sit a long time and I picked it up again this year when I finally got around to publishing it. And I know I've, I haven't reached the core and I don't know if anybody has. I know there are scholars who've gone further than me, but the point is that, and I think everybody who's worked with the Atalanta will agree with this, that it really forces you to shift your thinking. It makes you look at reality differently. And if initiation is anything at all, it alters the way you look at reality or it alters the reality that you experience. Um, now, that's my understanding of initiation, but I think it's also the general understanding of initiation. Therefore, when... Um, you see, you look at a, a symbolic image and you go, oh, okay, there's the myth. And I can see, oh, I recognize that. And oh, I recognize those figures. And I can put it all together rationally. And that's on a kind of literal level. And we can recognize it on an allegorical level. But once we begin working with it and actually think, oh, hang on a minute. If he's saying that, that also means that the reality I'm experiencing out here is that. Now that that shift is initiation. I think I think you may agree. Um, and so, level by level, as you go through it, it just keeps, you know, it just keeps hitting you basically. And every time you unlock something, it's like, ah, okay. So these emblems go together. It's telling me to do this, and you've just got another piece of the puzzle for whatever the lab work is, or whatever the next thing he's telling you to do is. Um, so, that's pretty much how it's uh, put together. Yeah. Um, uh, Bishop Laney, uh, I'll take another pause uh, to, to make sure that uh, we have a breath of fresh air coming in. Do you have any rabbit holes or follow-up questions? Um, I believe, I, 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 have the musical pieces been recorded? I, wa I want to say that I've heard that they have been, but I, I don't, I'm not sure. It was a long time ago they, that I... They have been. Um, originally, I think Adam McLean, I think, I could I could yeah. have this wrong, but to the best of my uh, memory, I think Adam McLean made um, a very basic version, a keyboard version, and then there was, um, I think, a chamber music group or something that took it up. Now, and I would urge listeners, anyone interested in this, to go over to the website furnaceandfugue.org. Um, which is, um, it's uh, Dr. Donna Billack and colleagues have done, I mean, incredible work wow. going much further with the Atalanta Fugins, and they've looked a lot more closely at the music. I haven't touched the music. I'm okay. Uh, it, it's not, it's not my area. I'm all about images. I'm an artist. That's what drew me in, really. Um, but I do know, yes, that they there have been recordings made. There have been several recordings made. And there's some incredible history and uh, background to those um, fugues in there as well. Uh, there's there's hidden meanings even in the style of music that was selected. So yeah, yeah, yeah. there's more there. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna. Oh boy, this is gonna be one heck of a rabbit hole for me because I, I'm fascinated. Oh, you know, I, I love the style of, of, the, of the Rosicrucian emblems to begin with, and. Um, you know, just the, the you know being able to to work with that music and 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 um, the text is available in English. The text is available. There's um there's a translation. There was one publication by um, Adam McLean 
and mm -hmm. a colleague. Um, I don't know if it's in print. There's another by uh, HME de Jong, and it's called, again, I think it's called the Atalanta, yeah, Michael Myers' Atalanta Fugians, and that's a straight translation. Um, so, and that was one of my main uh, sources, to be honest. And she's, uh, I think she's abridged the commentaries a little bit, but okay. not by much. Um, right. so those are the, those are the two main ones that I know of. Um, I don't know if Dr. Bilak, whom I mentioned earlier, has also, um, either sourced or done a new one, or if there is one available on that website. Um, but yes. Um, but as I say, it's uh, you, you kind of need to try and work with all of it and see what comes out. Absolutely. Amazing. Adam, yeah. Adam McLean has done such amazing work for us all. He has. Uh, he has. He has. I think we all owe him a huge debt, to be honest. Yeah, he was doing yeah. this at a time when a lot of people wouldn't even touch it. And um, yeah. and he's preserved it and he's just put his whole life into it. So it, it, it's actually quite he wonderful. Has. He has. He has. Yeah, uh, the finding his website in, in the '90s was uh, was a huge resource and inspiration for me, and you know one of the things that led okay. me to where I am now. And uh, uh, I, I think you might have uh, perhaps you said something like this, Doctor Chato, that uh, that looking at at alchemical emblems as an artist was something that got you interested in the esoteric. Is that right? Um, that's pretty much the gist of it. I mean, there were influences in my, indirectly around me from much earlier than I ever knew. I mean, it's, I've, I've kind of pieced it together later in life. Like, how, how did I miss that? It's, so it's esoteric sort of, um, I don't know, uh, frequencies have always been in my environment, but not obviously. Um, and I stumbled across the Tashin book. I'm sure you must you must have seen that one. The Tashin book by Alexandra Rube, which is this little compact book just packed with alchemical emblems. And I stumbled across that one day. I was trying to do symbolist art before I knew that symbolist art was a thing. And I was trying to do <laughs> esoteric sort of hidden meanings within symbolist art before I knew esoteric was a thing either. And so I stumbled across this book. I said, oh, this is what I want to be doing. Um, and then it just, I kind of, yeah, in the 90s, um, kind of went digging here and there and just got this hodgepodge of information together and then suddenly stumbled across the um, Masters in Western Esotericism at Exeter. And then, yeah, the rest is history, really. <laughs> um, that helped me put everything in order and kind of get a proper foundation and put what I knew in its proper place kind of yeah, in a sense and yeah and the rest is history yeah <laughs> and I mean, I've was, said yeah. it, I've said it before on the show but I had a similar I found a Tashin book and then I found Adam McLean's website and then I found whatever came next so yeah, yeah. <laughs> um it's we actually right, have yeah. Uh, the the we have ten or twenty minutes left hypothetically. I know it's pretty late where where you were, but but I'd be remiss for uh, you know the, the our friends Japan Sofers would be very unhappy if I didn't ask you about about Meyer and the Rosicrucians, like what Rosicrucianism meant to him and why the Rosicrucians sort of inspired him or perhaps drove him a little neurotically crazy. However, however you want to phrase it. Well, the first thing I'd just like to say is um, that I am incredibly grateful to the folk over at pantsofhis.com because I wouldn't have published this book if it weren't for their nudging. Um, I wrote this 12 years ago. It was um, basically my MA thesis for at Exeter and I did nothing. I, I was always going to do something with it. I was always too busy doing other stuff as well. It's the story of my life. 
Um, but it was it was it was through some uh, very timely nudging that I actually got around to publishing it. So I'm very grateful, and they're lovely, lovely people, really good people, and I and, and that I mean. So as I mentioned earlier, Maya was living in a time of incredible, incredible turmoil, incredible um social political i mean people were killing each other all across europe for religious reasons it was a horrible time and in a way so the, you know the rena the beauty of the renaissance had given way to the reformation and then religious warfare and this just went on for a good century or so and um he's born into a place where he's just trying to make sense of all of this and trying to find a way to kind of find, you know, a kind of order in the world. Um, so it's not surprising in a way. He's one of the main figures who actually gave structure to a lot of the um, alchemical material he came across. And that was based on Pythagoras, who again sort of saw number and order as the basis for the universe. And I think it's a very real kind of quest to bring order to chaos. Uh, which isn't really surprising um, given the times. And if you imagine the chaos, you look at the chaos of our times, you know, it, it, may, it, may, it can't have felt that different. That's how my eye sense yeah. it. Yeah. And so it's, it, within all of that, um, you suddenly get the Rosicrucian manifestos appearing seemingly out of nowhere, proclaiming this new age of bliss and harmony and grace um, that is imminently going to um be unleashed through the teachings of these sages who have rediscovered the um teachings of christian rosenkreuz and maya of course as well uh, as far as we know as far as the evidence the historical evidence goes and i speak as a historian in this case there was no rosicrucian brotherhood there was a very small group of individuals possibly only a couple of individuals um, behind these manifestos, um, yet the response it provoked and the passion that it provoked, that they provoked, was overwhelming. And Maya was one of the greatest um, apologists for the Rosicrucian uh, idea, uh, thinking that, oh my goodness, here is the answer. Here's here's what it what what it's going to be. Where do I sign up? Where do I join? And so we, I mean, we have these incredibly poignant letters um, that Maya, open letters that Maya published, hoping they would reach this Rosicrucian Brotherhood, uh, sort of trying to, desperately trying to get in touch with them. And a little later in his life, these really almost heartbroken letters sort of saying, well, you know, I've tried and I've tried and I've gone this far and I've managed to, he, he sort of had this system of 18 steps in his in his mind of 18 steps of initiation, it's like, I've reached the 17th, but there is no way I can go further. I will always be in the dark without a mentor unless I have guidance. And he never found that guidance, it seems. And that's mm. why he, he, it seems that's why he created his own system to at least leave a breadcrumb trail for those who would follow. So, um, and, and the irony being, of course, that his work was deeply, deeply inspirational to the early Rosicrucian brotherhoods that were formed in the aftermath of the manifestos, but of course he never got to see them. So uh, that, it, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting sequence of events, which is counterintuitive in a way, but uh, yeah. Yeah. And finally, the most important question of all, where can people buy your book? 
Um, so, uh, not on Amazon, I'm afraid. Um, uh -huh. Yeah. No, uh, this is, I mean, I've released this under my gallery label because we do publish art books and because um, I have about six other books in the uh, on the way at the moment with major publishers, some of them. So this one I just wanted to be available direct from me for to those who are interested. So you can find it through my website, sashachato.co.uk. Um, and then it's like you, you can find it on the front page, but it's also slash Atalanta unveiled. Um, and it's also available through Lulu if you just um, put my name in there or put the title Atalanta Fugions, uh, Atalanta unveiled, I'm sorry, in there. Um, and uh, so it's only available directly from me, I'm afraid, for now. Yeah. Well, I'll also make sure to, to put the link in the uh, show notes. Well, I, I think that's it for tonight. That that was amazing. And I can't wait to get my hands on a copy of this book. Same here. And, Same uh, here. Yeah. And if if you folks out there, uh, watchers, listeners, uh, buy the book. If you achieve the Philosopher's Stone, please let us know. And uh, Dr. Chato, thanks uh, again so much for joining us, for joining us in the middle of the night, your time. Yes. Uh, when the next book comes out, uh, you know, hopefully we'll have you back on to talk about that. And uh, it's just been uh, an awesome show. So, so many, many thanks. Thank, Thank you, you very much for having me. And keep on the, keep up the good work. <laughs> thanks. Thank okay, folks, this is Deacon Jonathan signing off. Uh, we love you. Good night. Good night.